Well, welcome back to Mike's podcast. It is good to have you with us, and I'm really excited. In a moment, I'm going to introduce my friend Jonathan Merritt, who has so many thoughtful things to share with us. I'm really excited for you to get to hear from him in just a minute. A couple of things as we get into this. Um, first, uh, I want to let you know, and I'll mention it at some point in the podcast, like all of my neighbors are doing some kind of construction right now, and there's absolutely nowhere for me to record this that's quiet. And so every so often, you're going to hear a hammer, you're going to hear a saw, and such is the reality of COVID life that we are all experiencing where everything is happening all around us, and we're all working from home, and it's just all happening simultaneously. So that is going on. Also, um, so many of you have been so generous at at helping to support me and the work that I'm doing with post-evangelical churches as we work to um, get them better connected to help sharing of resources to catalyze that movement. And so um, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for, for your generosity. I really, really, really do appreciate it. Um, and then finally, maybe you are somebody who finds yourself feeling a bit ecclesiologically homeless and you feel like like you're a church leader who maybe like you fit in this post-evangelical space. Um, Jonathan will describe a little bit of how he understands what that is. And if that kind of resonates with you and you feel like, I don't really have a tribe anymore, and I'm, I'm in leadership in this church, I'm a pastor or other kind of leader in the church, and I'm just trying to figure out where I belong and where I fit, I, I would love to connect with you, and I would love to get to know you. I I get to have conversations every week as I meet new people who feel like they fit in this space. And so would you just please reach out to me, uh, shoot me a note at mike at mikegoldsworthy.com, send me an email there, and I'd love for us to find a time to have a phone call or get on the Zoom or just find some sort of way to connect. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to my time here with Jonathan. Well, friends, welcome back to the podcast. I am excited to have you with us and really stoked on our guest here. We've got Jonathan Merritt coming to us from lockdown in New York City. And um, Jonathan, you are known for being a writer on faith and culture. I was looking at your website recently and you, I mean, I'm assuming that this is true and you're not just making stuff up. You've written over 3,500 articles you said on there. I guess, I guess early early on in my most unhealthy three days, I think I, I I put all of them into a document one at a time. So there was a time I think that I was counting that, and it and it and it did end up in a in a bio. So the answer is yes. Uh, I don't know what that number is. I don't count anymore, but I, I do write a lot less than I used to. Yeah. Uh, but I but I I still write quite a lot. Yeah. I think um, probably a lot of people would know you from your writing, from your writing, both in books um, as well as like on the Atlantic or in the Atlantic and the Religious News Service, Christianity Today, Washington Post, you've had articles, all that. You are a writing coach. I went to your writer's boot camp a few years ago when we were allowed to be with people in person. Um, you have been a pastor, got a master's of divinity, and you got all kinds of like thoughtful contributions. And so... I kind of wanted to just pick your brain on a bunch of different things here today. And I thought maybe we'd just have like a potpourri of things to talk about. And I'll ask you some questions and some stuff. Maybe you could just riff on it. Um, but I, where I wanted to start is uh, one of my favorite things you've done on Instagram. 
was, I think it's been a couple of years now, you found a tiny diary on the street. Uh-huh. Yes, and then that's true. You would like dramatically read it every night on Instagram. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. My, my kids and I, we were, this is one of my favorite things. And we would, every night, we would anticipate the next edition of uh, Tiny Diary. And we'd sit down to watch it and we were really sad when it ended. Um, like what like what was that was that just like this random like you found this and i need to do something with it like what how did that all start you know um it was found um you know on the streets of new york and it was this tiny little leather book and and when i say tiny i mean tiny it was you know a few inches by a few inches and um it was filled with this person's musings and um they had sort of moved to new york and and then it was their first um experiences in the city having not lived here before uh but the person was so funny uh unintentionally funny um they were they were quite serious um in the way that they wrote earnest really um but it was hilarious and it's so funny looking back at the number of people that really loved tiny diary tiny diary because it was just on a whim i read it and it was so funny i thought i am not the only person that needs to read everybody needs to hear how interesting and funny it is there were some parts of it that could not be read um <laughs> could not be recorded but in general uh it was it was so funny and 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 it's and ever since then all i've wanted was to find another tiny diary on the street that would be amazing part two. What did you, what did you do with the tiny diary? Do you still have it? I, I do. And in fact, is, as you said that I was looking onto the shelf where I, where I put it and it's not on the place on the shelf where it was, it was on top of some books. So it's in this room somewhere. Uh, and it's when I get off the phone with you, uh, I'm going to go and, and, and find it because, uh, I have not looked at it in probably six to eight, six to eight months, if not longer. Well, I'm I'm really hopeful when we're allowed to travel again and I'm out in New York, I'm really hopeful to get a chance to hold Tiny Diary for myself. Yeah, you're, you're welcome to. You, it is a, <laughs> it's a piece of art. It's a piece of art. Now, um, speaking of uh, Instagram and social media, you have like, you have withdrawn a bit from like, it seems like most or all forms of social media, like you're still popping in here and there, but you're, you're off it. You, I know we're on a sabbatical for a little while. And as you came back, just are not engaged as much as you were. Do you have any, like, what have you learned about? What are you, like, how are you thinking about the way that you engage in social media today? That's a good question. You know, prior to my sabbatical, um, I'd had a situation on Twitter where I got in a fight with someone that was worthless and meaningless and fruitless. And we both looked like, uh, like we had some issues that needed to be worked on afterwards. Mm. And I just, and I, and I had to actually apologize to say, this is not the version of myself that I want to present to people. And um, it was shortly after that, that I said, you know, when I go on sabbatical, maybe I just need to delete the Twitter app. And, um, and so I did. And I found what, you know, you hear people talk about, Oh, I deleted Instagram or I, you know, I deleted Facebook and it was the best decision I ever made. And you kind of think, I'm sure that's true for them, but like, I'm pretty healthy and it's, you know, it's not that kind of a, uh, a thing for me, but it was, 
Uh, because as soon as I got off first, uh, it was like a junkie, you know, who was looking for a clean needle. And uh, I felt I would reflexively cycle. There were different cycles I would do on my phone and yeah. then there wouldn't be a Twitter app there. And so I began to realize that there was a kind of compulsive connection um, to Twitter, number one, that I didn't like. I don't like to be controlled that way. Um, a, number two, I think that that um, given my um, the propensities of my personality, um, I don't think it's it it it's it's not encouraging the best parts of me um, to to sort of show themselves and to be present. And, um, so, you know, I think after about a month and a half or two months, I was like, I do think I'm actually happier without mm -hmm. having mm -hmm. Twitter on my phone. Now, do I still tweet? Yes. Um, but I found that when I have to log in, it, 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 it forces me to put it a bit into perspective because it's like a thing I do. And it's not just something I'm constantly doing. That's like a part of my rhythms. And I think when you, when you access Twitter on the computer, you know, it's, um, it is a, it's not addictive on the, okay. on, on the desktop, like it is on your phone. Uh, but that sort of began to like bleed over a little bit that as I began to disentangle myself from one uh, social media network, I felt, I felt like there was less incentive um, to go to other social media networks. And so uh, I just kind of have, have engaged in what I might call like intuitive posting. You know, that, that there are times where I feel like I need to say something or do something, but I am no longer um, just filling the, the, the silence with my yeah. voice. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I think that that's really, that's really tough. Um, that, that on the one hand, I need it for my job and people have noticed. And on the other hand, it's just not healthy for me. And so like, what do you do? So I imagine that that there will be a season where I will be more active on social media than I am right now. But right now, it's been a good, healthy break for me. And I don't know how long that will last. But I, I've given up being afraid that somehow I'll become irrelevant hmm. or people will forget me or, you know, I, I'm just more focused in this phase of life on really committing to healthy agreements and systems and not participating in things that are not good for me just because somebody somewhere has said that I should. Yeah. That's such a, like, a um, you're mentioning that you're an Enneagram three earlier, like such a healthy thing for an Enneagram three, right. To feel like um, this might make me irrelevant and I'm going to do it anyways. Um I was thinking about Cal Newport's book as you were describing that. Have you read Cal Newport's stuff? Yeah. And the way that he talks about engagement with social media of like, get rid of it all and then figure out what's, what, how is this tool used? And then I will engage in it in the way that it's useful as opposed to it essentially using me. Mm -hmm. that, that makes a ton of, that makes a ton of sense to me. And it's interesting to me that you're doing that in the midst of like your income is tied into some of that in some ways, in ways that a lot of people that are on social media, it's not. 
and that we're in the midst of a pandemic where you're locked down and you're more isolated than normally maybe you would be. And social media has been one of the things that has made some people feel more connected rather than isolated. It feels like Mm -hmm. a really significant and harder discipline to be doing right now, maybe than it would be at a different period in time. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think, um, I think that social media has changed us and is changing us in ways we're only now beginning to see. And so people have to ask the question, you know, am I willing to pay the price for what I'm getting from this if I'm using it in this way? Or are there better ways, different ways, less common ways of using these networks that um, take into account the needs of my soul, Hmm. the needs of my psyche, the needs of my emotions, my own sort of personal proclivities, my personality, the things that I'm, I'm given over to. And most people are not asking those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They're, they're just sort of they're you know, the social media becomes just like a river that you fall into and then it carries you along. And, uh, and I don't, I think going forward, I'm going to be much more intentional about how I use it, but I do think I'll be more active, you know, in different seasons. For sure. For sure. I like that. Um, Well, on a completely different, told you potpourri, I want to talk to you about like church and what's happening in church at large and get some thoughts on it. Uh, So I thought maybe I'd start with, I had a few of our mutual friends on recently, people like Jason Miller and Justin Morgan and Michael Hidalgo and Lindsay Nobles and talking about like what they want to see be true in the church and what they're trying to move towards. And, and I think the best term that, that I've seen around for kind of what seems to be happening in that is post evangelical. And if you have a better name for it, I would love that because I get criticized for that name all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think probably your church where you're uh, an elder, if I remember right at um, Mm -hmm. good shepherd, New York probably fits within this sort of like broader scope of post-evangelical, what, like, how would you understand what's unique or different about churches like that? If you're trying to describe churches like those, like in what sort of like shorthand ways would you be talking about them? You know, I find that um, there are a few things that are kind of consistent. Uh, And I would say, um, the first thing that I, that I'd preface this conversation with is to say that there is a difference uh, in my mind, at least between what I'm calling post evangelical and what I'm calling ex evangelical or what has been called ex evangelical that there is, there are many people who've taken a similar path perhaps. Um, but, uh, or they've done similar things, which is they've moved beyond something or outside of something that they were once in. And those, those people are angry about it. They're reactionary. They're pr- primarily interested or, or to some extent interested in destroying or attacking that thing. And then there, there are others, and I, I, I'd consider myself a part of, of that group that are post-evangelical, whereas um, that, that, you know, evangelicalism is like, rings on a tree, right? It's something that's buried deep inside you, and it will always be a part of your history and your heritage. And yet, 
the ways in which you're expressing yourself and your faith life and the ways in which you're encountering God and the spaces where you're encountering God are outside of those traditions. And um, you, you are, you're not angry about it as much as um, you're, you're taking into account the, the wisdom that you learned there and the wisdom you learned from leaving those spaces. And so um, those, the, the individuals who are post-evangelical are, are much more likely to still be excited about church to yep. some extent. Um, and, but, but they are, um, they're, they're, they're still removed from, uh, church, the evangelical church or from evangelical churches. When you talk about good shepherd, I think good shepherd in many ways does typify, um, kind of that post evangelical posture. Um, you know, some of our, uh, distinctives and values, I think incorporate, um, what you would find to be consistent diversity, not just racial diversity, but theological diversity. Hmm. Many people coming from fundamentalism um, or, or streams of evangelicalism that were birthed from fundamentalism will be familiar with uh, settings in which um, you had theological consistency. There was a way to think and a way to be and doubts were not altogether welcome. Um, counterpoints were not altogether welcome. Different systems of belief were not altogether welcome. And I think that there's a real value um, in theological diversity for, for those of us who are quote unquote post-evangelical. Uh, creativity is big hmm. for us. We really value art and we're, we're thoughtful about the symbols and the, um, the aesthetics um, and the ways in which music and art and poetry and, and preaching and liturgy is stewarded, um, which sort of leads you into kind of a sacramental uh, perspective or a liturgical perspective. And I think that's true um, in kind of post-evangelical spaces that because um, you've grown out of evangelicalism, which is such a modern expression of Christianity and oftentimes kind of a freestyle way of being Christian where you can kind of make things up as you go, so to speak, based on what's pragmatic or what will be most effective. So you can change the way that you operate in a service or you can change the way, right? There's no kind of um, a historical or traditional um, center of gravity that you're, 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 um, you're, you're sort of orbiting it gives you that freedom. It doesn't make it right or wrong, but it's just a feature of that, that tradition. Uh, I think that those of us who've, who've grown out of that and are now quote unquote post-evangelical, we are, we're much more interested in kind of creedal or sacramental or liturgical expressions, historically rooted expressions of church, which is interesting because for a lot of people who grew up evangelical, uh, you go, oh, young people like this kind of hip uh, more like culturally resonant expression. And yet um, post-evangelicals are both young and also interested in, in more countercultural expressions of worship. Uh, I think that the biblical and missional components are also there. And those are things that, you know, as, as we go through, uh, there's a phrase that Phyllis Tickle, the late Phyllis Tickle once used of a rummage sale. As we go through the rummage sale of our own tradition, 
uh, a sort of biblical anchor as taking seriously the sacred text. That's something that many of us have chosen to keep. And I think the missional aspect, the, 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 the notion that following Jesus cannot be and should not be um, only a private and personal thing, but it should actually impact the ways in which we go out into the world and the ways in which we engage the world and people who are not Christian. Um, and that it should matter for the way that we give and the way that we vote and the way that we engage in, in our communities. Um, that's something that, that, that has been retained. And so there are things that have been tossed away and there are things that have been retained. Um, and, and, you know, does this mean that, that we're doing it the quote unquote right way? Well, the, the fundamentalist mind, which many of us uh, you know, still hold on to pieces of it. We would love to say, yes, we are, we have done it the right way, and that was the wrong way. I, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think that we are avoiding many of the mistakes of our forebears, and we're also committing many mistakes that um, those who come after us uh, will recognize, perhaps, uh, just like we did. And yeah, so yeah. we're also, you know, practicing Christianity in an imperfect way, but a way that we hope is to some degree or in some way improved on the last generation. That's so good. Um, if there is banging in the background, my neighbors are all doing construction all at the same time while we're doing this, which is fun times. Um, mm -hmm. But that reminds me of, there's a phrase I've heard you say uh, that I have stolen from you and I've used it a whole bunch of times since. And I give you credit most of the time, but pretty soon it'll it'll be like mine. And I always have said it and I'll have a book with that title. Um, okay, but, okay. but you said, uh, I didn't move from conservative to progressive. I moved from closed to open. Mm -hmm. And I've found that phrase such a helpful descriptor. And even as you were like, I felt like that was some of the ethos, even of some of what you were describing. Do you mind mm -hmm. like unpacking that a little bit? Yeah, you know, um, if you think about these traditional categories of left to right, um, they just don't fit because, you know, we talked a minute ago about being um, being uh, okay with theological diversity. Well, I wouldn't say that that's true always on the left. In many cases, the left is kind of a it kind of mirrors the right in its posture, right? It says, these are the things that you must be to, con to be considered enlightened, to be considered good, to be considered in and not out, us and not them. And, um, you know, that's a pretty arbitrary list. Um, and, and I think that, that, you know, you see that, that the kind of, of mechanisms that were present on, on the evangelical right can be present on the left. Um, I think when you look at post-evangelicals, it is more about an openness. Um, it's giving people the freedom, deeply rooted in their tradition, to take what they believe is life-giving and helpful and, and, true, and, and as close as we can with the tools that we have represents what we believe to be the capital L love of the universe. Uh, but that may mean for some people uh, something different than it means for me. Uh, I think being, you know, we talk about being deeply biblical. Um, you may go into a post-evangelical church and you're still going to find people who the Bible for them is so important. 
And that's not always true on the left, even among the Christian left, right? They have a multiplicity of, of um, ways of knowing that they're bringing into conversation, but they're, they're not as committed to, to, to the Bible as kind of the way of knowing as, as some of us are. I live on a, on a campus of an Episcopal seminary, which is a very kind of left-leaning denomination. They would be kind of one of the standard bearers of the quote-unquote left uh, of sort of Christianity in America. And, and those folks will often say things to me like, wow, you know, you, you guys really know your Bible. You, you're, you're able to like quote the Bible and I'm able to look at them and say, wow, you really know some of these historic, you know, the prayer book, yeah, you know, the yeah. book of common prayer, you know, other um, sources of wisdom better than I do. And I think we're able to offer each other a kind of mutual respect, what Barbara Brown Taylor is called a holy envy hmm. um, without requiring the other person to become like us in order to 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 get our stamp of approval and and so for me these kind of tribalistic notions of left and right are transcended by um, these new um, ways of being christian that incorporate um, some of the good things from all sides left right and in the middle uh, without feeling like they have to genuflect to the gatekeepers uh, on either of the polar ends. And so, you know, if people say, are you more left or right? I guess if you add it all up, if you could do that, maybe the sum total leans in one direction. But in many ways, I'm to the left. And in many other ways, I'm, I'm to the right. Um, and, and so it, 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 to me is not, it's no longer the most helpful rubric for describing who we are or, or, or sort of what our kind of animating posture is. Uh, but this, this idea of being closed to, to somebody who is, who is most concerned with who's in and who's out, most concerned with bean counting and boundary drawing. And uh, to, to a position of openness that is most concerned with understanding and inclusion and a kind of capaciousness, even theologically, even mm. in practice, even in the people that we read and listen to and are, are willing to hear out. I think that to me is, is not just a more helpful framework, but it's a more accurate one when we're talking about post-evangelicalism. That's really good. I mean, so as you, because I mean, you're connected with a lot of people and you have a good pulse on, on what's going on at large in the church. And of course, we know that church attendance is on the decline. And at the same time, amount of mega churches and things like that are on the increase. Um, are you seeing any kind of resurgence of churches like post-evangelical churches? Is that anything that things are moving towards? Are there more and more of these? Are Like what's going on there? Yeah, I, I see a couple of things, and, and I'll say this tentatively because a lot of these changes have co coincided with, with at least two phenomena. I'll say three. Um, one, the rise of Trump's America, which has sure. polarized Christianity in, in, a, in an interesting way. It has fractured e evangelicalism in a way. And I think that that's going to create kind of pinholes uh, that will grow over time, that will create space where these new kinds of communities can incubate. That's speculative. 
but I think that certainly is is true. Secondly, uh, we had the rise of uh, this the, the sort of we had this global pandemic, and uh, that has changed uh, the church in some significant ways as well. Uh, a lot of your smaller churches, a lot of your you know declined uh, mainline churches. I have been affected in substantial ways by the inability to meet in um, physical spaces, mm. by uh, you know the kind of low bar that's been set now that some folks still can't reach, uh, that's unattainable for many folks in terms of the technological um, uh, necessities uh, that make ministry possible in this kind of world. And then accompanying that, tied into that, is the this economic recession uh, that is connected to or accelerated for faith communities by the pandemic. And um, so I think that you're going to see that there are going to be kinds of churches that will fade away. And um, that is going to both platform mega churches um, on the right and on the left, um, churches that have big endowments that have been around historically that don't okay, have sure. mortgages. And then there's this whole space in the middle where all those who caught in the who were caught in the middle have faded, they have um, constricted, or they've ceased to exist. And uh, that is going to create, I think, space where new uh, churches will rise up. Uh, I believe many of those churches will look a lot like or look more like um, Good Shepherd. Hmm. Uh, that has a kind of historic sacramental openness, but also is theologically savvy and is able to pivot to a digital format. I mean, if you think that that this is absolutely going to be the last crippling pandemic of our lifetime, I think you're wrong. Uh, we are, if you read the literature on science, we have an explosion of new viruses. Uh, we have a, a, a viral explosion that is um, going to be uncontainable. We have the emergence of countless uh, strains of bacteria that are antibiotic resistant. We know this has been coming for decades because of the overprescription of antibiotics. And so you may have bacteria that in the past you, you could take amoxicillin for that could cripple us to our knees. Uh, so I think it's probably a matter of time before uh, these kinds of things uh, will reemerge in a new form and could cause even worse effects uh, than, they're, than they're causing now. Vaccinations, you know, can be great. Um, but they, they can do a lot of damage before they're created. And so I think this is something that we're going to see in the future. Additionally, because we were so ill-prepared for this, I think that one thing that is not being talked about is that um, new and novel strains of diseases can be weaponized uh, effectively. And so the kinds of money that we're investing in, in the United States in particular into national defense is well suited when somebody is, you know, landing on your shores or flying in your airspace. I think that's just a, a silly, antiquated notion of what war will look like in the future. And so, what happens when the many, many, many uh, state actors and also non-state actors who have expressed their disdain for the United States 
um, decide to, on our shores, uh, introduce new diseases. Um, these are the kinds of realities that we're going to be facing. The idea that we're going to go back to a pre-COVID world is asinine. Uh, so I think that the way that faith will have to locate itself will have to become nimble and agile in the midst of a world that that is is now far more uncertain in in more ways than we knew 18 months ago uh, is going has created a kind of unknown frontier for the church so i'm reticent to say what the church will look like in the future but I'm hopeful that the model being put forth by Good Shepherd is at least one model that I think seems to be viable uh, for the future in ways that other models that have been popular in even, even in the early 21st century in the West, in particular in America, uh, I think that, that the, the, the kinds of churches that succeeded five years ago are not necessarily a precise reflection of the kinds of churches we can expect in the future. That's really interesting. Um, I appreciate you moving it to a hopeful place because I was getting dark there for a little bit with you. On like, <laughs> oh crap, everything is terrible. And um, and actually, we're in the midst of like everything feels a little bit terrible right now. Um, so as we're recording this, yesterday uh, a mob stormed the Capitol and. Many of them uh, claiming Christ as they stormed the Capitol, raised a cross outside of it, carried a Jesus 2020 flag with them. And um, and so we are seeing, I don't know, are we seeing the rise of Christian nationalism? Are we just seeing Christian nationalism or Christian white nationalism coming out of the closet? Or like what what it, what is going on here? You know, I think it's a mix. I think some of this has always been there and is now awakening um you know if if the if the individuals who stormed the capitol to yesterday had been black we would be having a lot more funerals this week 100 percent. and so i think that um the there there is now something that we have never seen before which is two sides of America that are not divided over issues. They are divided over reality. Hmm. You know, we used to, we used to come together and fight about issues with a, with roughly a shared sense of reality, a common understanding of what, what the world is. And uh, I think that we have lost that shared sense of reality. And that is, more serious, exponentially more serious than any disagreement that we've ever had in American history. Yeah. Because yeah. if we can't agree on what is real, then we we no longer have anything in common. Uh, so for me, you had people on two sides uh, of America, the two the two different Americas, and they're actually an infinite number that could all take polygraph tests and could say the opposite things about reality and they'd all pass with flying colors. Hmm. And I am not, I don't, I don't have any expertise to tell you how you overcome that. I think that the language of faith is, is helpful because it allows people, no matter the, how they see the world, to access a common language 
uh, to use the language of brother and sister and, yeah. and father and mother together. And I do think it has the power to break tribal lines. But uh, in so far, those identities have actually been weaponized within those tribes. And they are not being used to transcend uh, our divisions, our different understandings of what is. And um, in that sense, the language of faith, which represents one of the best hopes we have for healing the soul of America, has now been used to rend the soul of America, Hmm. to tear it apart, to fracture it. And uh, I, I am not sure what it looks like to uh, to move beyond that. I know that we have in the past. I know that in the past, if if I had been alive in the heat of the civil rights movement, in the heat of the the riots on college campuses, uh, protesting Vietnam, if I had been alive during the American Civil War. If I had been alive during World War II or the Great Depression, if I had been alive in every era of American history when people were despairing, when people were doubting whether or not there was a way forward, I imagine I would have felt similarly. And yet, as I talk to people who are older than me, who survived many of those things, those people tell me uh, with unanimity that this is both quantitatively and qualitatively different than anything that they have ever seen in American history. And I think that that does worry me. And so I I do want to front load hope uh, because um, hope is a powerful medicine and we know that it is. And we need hope and we need a vision and we need faith and also Uh, I find myself increasingly despairing about the possibilities that we can recover in the ways that we have recovered throughout American history. Hmm. Um, So one of the things that I'm curious about is like with a sort of open posture, uh, trying to have relationships with people who aren't in the same place that I am is um, it, it was, it felt different. Like you were saying, maybe like 10 years ago, it felt different to have discussions where you had people in different political places. And it was like, we can come around, we can come around the dinner table together and we can have discussions around these issues. We could, I could in the church say like, Hey, we have Republicans and Democrats sitting next to each other. And we come together around the common table of Christ and Christ is what brings us together. And then what feels different is what you're describing as, well, we have a different understanding of reality. And so it's not Republican Democrat. It's not, it's not whatever. It's, it's we have completely different bases of reality. Like, how do you be open? What does it look like to be in relationship? What is, or is it even healthy and helpful to be in relationship with people who are in a different plane of reality than you are? Like, what does that look like right now? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, obviously, it it is healthy to be in relationship with people who think differently than you, who look differently than you, etc. However, it is not inherently healthy to be in relationship with somebody who is different than you. Hmm. Um, there are many people who are different than me, who are uh, hateful, who are uh, n- ignorant. 
Um, and so there is a spectrum, right? Um, I, I have to do a kind of triaging uh, of the types of people who uh, I'm willing to be in relationship with. And there are different kinds of relationship that I can offer to people. There's some folks who, uh, you know, who marched in Charlottesville that um, I'm not sure that it is healthy for me to be in relationship with them at all. Hmm. Now, how do you answer the question? Well, doesn't Jesus want to speak to them? And couldn't Jesus use you to speak to them? I, I don't have an answer for that. I'm not saying that people are, that there are some people who are beyond the pale. There are some people who are beyond redemption. There are some people beyond, uh, you know, the reach, the hand of God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that I also have to do my own self-care and my own soul care. And there are some people that, that I, Jonathan Merritt, uh, it is not healthy for me to be in relationship with them. And oftentimes the, 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 the most sad and mournful truth is, is that some of those people that it's not healthy for you to be in relationship with or to be in as close relationship with as you once were, you share DNA with those people. You share a last name with those people. You have lived some of your most precious moments with those people. And that means that in order to maintain your own health, that you have to walk um, the road of grief. You have to, to let go of those relationships. And that's a difficult decision to make, but I think it's a decision that many of us have already had to make. Uh, I don't know anyone who has the exact same friend group from, from 2015 to now. Uh, some people yeah, maybe, yeah. but many people that they would say, really, you don't have one relationship that has become more tense. You don't have one person in your life that you feel a greater chasm between you because most people I'm talking to, uh, you know, from various walks of life would say that, that the divisions that we have seen on a macro level have had on a micro level, um, incredible, uh, consequences. Yes. And we have seen that borne out in public opinion polls where people talked about, they, they change their plans at Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays that have traditionally been spent with people that are your given family, your biological family. And people I think are now realizing that the ways in which uh, we have uh, allowed our social and political landscape to so change us that it has made it untenable, unhealthy, to have those relationships. And that should break our heart hmm. because uh, we, it, it may be both necessary to do something and also incredibly heartbreaking that it even became necessary. Yeah. Um, so I think in many cases you have to draw a line and say no, but in more cases than we often give ourselves credit, uh, we have to do the hard work of holding space of not saying the thing just because it's true, of allowing someone to have an opinion that we disagree with. And uh, even one that we think is damaging, uh, even one that we think is harmful, uh, even one that we think might be quote unquote bigoted, um, there may be times where we do create space and we say, okay, grandpa, I understand that you see the world differently than me, 
but that I, I love you so much and I so want you in my life that we may need to um, create boundaries to make that possible. And so boundaries, I think, are, the, are one, you need discernment to determine when it's possible. And then two, you need boundaries to make it possible. Hmm. And then three, you need people willing to respect boundaries um, to, to sustain it. And um, you may find at any step of the way um, that you, you have to let go of somebody that you really love. Hmm. That's really difficult, but really wise. I appreciate that. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, and I wanted to make sure I asked this. So I, I'm going to jump to over a few things I want to talk about because I want to talk about Beth Moore because um, mm-hmm. like, I want to be her best friend now. And that wasn't always the case. Um, when I had first taken over my church, uh, if I'm honest, I had a bit of disdain for Beth Moore because it was like the women in our church, the middle-aged old and older women just like idolized her. And um, and they would do these Bible studies where she was teaching like dispensational premillennialism. And I was like, please, God, how do we get this out of our church? And over the last four years, I've just become so enamored with her, with her courageous voice, with the um, things that she's standing up against, with the relationships that she has built. Um, I, I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about like the unique role that she's in and kind of how she's living out this moment. Mm. You know, Beth Moore is a, is a is a person I deeply respect and admire and somebody that I don't agree with on everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um she reads the Bible differently than I do. Um she believes things that I don't believe or that I used to believe but no longer believe. Um and yet uh, Beth Moore is a person who has an unassailable um commitment to God and to loving her neighbor. And Beth Moore is willing to be changed. And I think that fundamentalism and evangelicalism, which has grown grown out of fundamentalism and is fundamentalist on a spectrum, almost always, um, this is a, a movement in which Beth Moore is deeply embedded and has been deeply embedded. And she shares theologically uh, a lot of DNA with evangelicalism. And yet, she has shown that she is willing to change her mind. She is willing to break rank. She's willing to step um, over lines when she feels like it's warranted. And um, I will say that fundamentalists on the left are often not willing to do that either. Um, So she, she represents something that I think is remarkable on both the right and the left. And what I hope for myself is that I would be more and more like her, um, in that way. You know, I think of when Paul said, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Hmm. That's Hmm. how I think of of Beth. There, there are, there are times where I see Beth say or do something that feels brave to me, but, um, maybe I don't even agree with it. And yet I, I have this kind of weird feeling that I'm, I can only sort of describe it by saying if I feel like if Jesus were here, that's sort of kind of the thing that I feel like Jesus would be doing or saying, I can't say for sure. I, I, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't, 
you know, I, I have to be really careful with with saying, you know, this is what Jesus would do. But the idea that that Beth, um, there are people on the left that don't like her, and there are people on the right that don't like her, and um, the the idea that someone like Beth can transcend categories makes me curious about it. It makes me think that it just might represent the way forward, a more mm. Jesus-y path. And um, having gotten to, to know her on a personal level, um, you, you also see someone who in their, their personal and private life is the same thing. And, you know, I know you've, you've met a lot of folks out there who, like me, you've met a lot of folks who they have their names on books and they have lots of followers on social media and they're not at all like that. Um, And, and so I think she is sadly the exception to the rule, but she just might also represent what the future looks like. That's so good. Um, Do we want to name names about who, uh, who we should throw under the bus right now? Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I could, I could name them. And you know what? Here's the thing. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing to name names yeah. because guess what? Um, uh, confession doesn't happen in general. Huh. Repentance doesn't happen in general. Sometimes you have to, uh, you have to put skin on or a face on the thing that you are discussing. And so I'm able to say that, and I've said it plenty of times, I think the antithesis um, to the kind of Beth Moore posture that I've described right there in Texas is a guy named Robert Jeffress. Uh, I think a pastor who is who is making the case for nuclear war, as he did with North Korea, I think that is a sham and a shame. I think that a pastor like that who provides cover for racist and xenophobic and bigoted uh, language and legislation like he has done uh, for our for our president uh, these last four years. It's a sham and it's a shame. And it is uh, to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, who said, uh, who blessed the poor, who said, I came to bring peace and not a sword yeah. to engage in saber rattling uh, hiding behind the Christian flag. And to me, I think it's important to name names. Um, I have a decent relationship with Robert Jeffress. Uh, before he was removed from his post, I had a decent relationship with Jerry Falwell Jr. Mm. I have a decent relationship with a lot of these individuals. And also, I think it's incumbent upon me to do what Jesus did a heck of a lot of the time. When he wasn't telling stories that were making people angry or confused, he was pointing to um, malformations of God fellowship. He was saying, this is what these people are saying. This is what it's like to follow God. And you need to know that this is not what it's like to follow God. And if we are not willing to call out the aberrations of faith, then we should not be surprised when the non-believing world looks at it and mistakes it for Christianity. And so um, I can both maintain a a civil relationship with with individuals like like Jerry Falwell Jr. and also like uh, Robert Jeffress, while at the same time maintaining that I believe that what they are doing slanders uh, the name of Jesus. 
<laughs> That's so good. I really appreciate you doing that and saying that. And um, yeah, it's like um, we we know the things and we talk amongst ourselves about the things and we are often not willing or afraid or I don't even know maybe what the reasons are, but that we're not saying those things out loud. Um, ah, I appreciate that. Thanks for doing that. Um, so, so to start moving towards wrapping things up, you, you've been working on a new book. Um, are you able to tell us anything about it when it's coming out, what it's about? I think if, if I can do some real intense writing this spring, uh, I think it will come out in the spring of 2022. Um, I can only say that it is a, it is a book. I want this book to be a pilgrimage of healing. And that is the, that's the, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind. I mean, you know, you humans have some things in common and they also have so many things that set them all apart. You can divide by geography, by chronology, by gender, by, by sexual orientation, um, by political affiliation or theological system. And you're going to find all kinds of differences in, in humans. But there's one thing that I know humans share. We, we, we all have a common experience of hurt. And we all long for healing. We all have been, have been in some way broken. And we all want to be put back together. And uh, that, that, that brokenness um, in the last 150 years has been increasingly called by the name trauma. And unfortunately, all of the best thinking on trauma has been limited to the fields of psychology and medicine, largely. And what I believe is that um, the mind, the emotional core, the mind, and the body are incredibly helpful in that conversation, but the spirit deserves a seat at the table too. And I think that while my, my Buddhist friends, uh, in some cases, have done a better job um, talking about these sorts of things and sort of bringing their own philosophies and ideas to the table. Um, while some of your, your kind of new age or new thought um, leaders have, have done a better job conversing um, in, this, in this dialogue, I think that, that oftentimes Christians have not. And Christian spirituality has many gifts and as much wisdom to offer to, um, to the conversation of what it means to heal from hurt. I'm somebody who in my life has experienced a number of, of deep wounds. Um, I was sexually abused by uh, a neighbor in our neighborhood growing up. I grew up in a home um, that uh, believed that the way that you raised a child was to physically discipline them. And that caused um, all kinds of ruptures um, in a very formative stage of my life. I grew up in a religious tradition that, uh, that weaponized shame and guilt and duty uh, in order to coerce, in particular, children and adolescents into um, conforming to certain behavioral systems and belief systems. Um, I ended up, I was outed 
very publicly uh, in 2012. And um, to have such a sensitive story ripped from your hands and shared with you, not on your own terms, is a, is a deep wound that I don't wish on anyone. Uh, I ended up in a, uh, uh, an abusive adult relationship shortly after moving to New York, where I was with someone who, um, you know, was, was expert level at lying, cheating, gaslighting. Um, and because of my own lack of self-worth, um, I stayed in that relationship for years. Mm. I developed, um, physical symptomologies throughout my life because I refused to, to take a pilgrimage of healing. Um, I've been medicated for anxiety and depression for many, many years. Uh, I struggled with panic attacks in graduate school. Um, I have for many, many years, I have had physical symptoms that were undiagnosable, including chronic pain and fibromyalgias. Um, I've broken out in shingles. I've had debilitating migraines. I have had periods where I slept 12 and 14 hours, just chronic fatigue. I've suffered from um, insomnia where I couldn't sleep. Um, angry outbursts and um, repressed rage. Um, you know, I, I won't bother you with all the details, but suffice to say that many of us, maybe you haven't languished, languished in all the ways that I have, but I think for many people, there are parts of my story that sound familiar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are parts of my story that people would raise their hand and say, same. Me too. I've been there. And what I want to do is to write a book that could be a, not a replacement for therapy, not a replacement for whatever it is that you and your doctor believe um, is best for you in terms of pharmacology and medicine, but perhaps would be a spiritual companion to that journey mm. that would give the spirit a chance to say something to speak into that pilgrimage and that hopefully people could walk that journey with me and maybe something that i have done or i have learned would help them as they put together their own pilgrimage their own journey which looks unique for all of us who have found ourselves under the weight of pain that hasn't been processed bro that um I'm really excited for that book. I'm uh, anxious for that to come out and can't wait to, can't wait to read it. And thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. Jonathan, every time I'm with you, I feel like I learned something. I feel like I'm challenged. I feel like um, I have so much respect for you and the way that you think, the way that you process the world, the way that you live. Um, you are one of those integrated people. Like I, I won't be on another podcast uh, calling you out and dropping your name. Like you're one of those integrated people. And I'm so, so grateful for you. Um, thanks for hanging out today. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, you said something and it just gave me a thought since we're on here, I might as well say it. Um, you know, when, as I look at Christian quote unquote leaders, whatever that means, who have been really unhelpful to name alongside uh, the Jerry Falwell juniors and the, the, the Robert Jeffress, who in this period have, have, have been less than helpful. Um, 
I think some of the worst offenders have been previous versions of myself Mm. and um, learning to place previous versions of oneself and to name that person by name um, to say that there are versions of Jonathan Merritt who have been at least as unhelpful as the other individuals I named. Um, That's a really important step too. And, And it's important not just because it makes us look humble, it's important because it, it is a necessary step to nurturing in us, not just a propensity for truth telling, but a propensity for compassion, uh, because we're able to see even in people who are older than us, even in people in us that we might call the quote unquote enemy, the same tendencies that I've expressed in my own life that maybe in, in this interview I've expressed, maybe in this period of life, maybe in some ways I'm the bad guy. And so um, both of those things are true, that I mm. am the problem and I also believe I am the solution. I can, the, the human mind is, is incredibly adept at, at holding those two thoughts together at the same time if we're willing to try it. And I have to believe that the same thing that is true of me is true of many of the people right now that I think are doing a lot of harm. And, um, and so I think it's a really good practice to actually and in a specific way, not in a general way, yeah, yeah. Um, to begin thinking about the ways that previous versions of ourselves of ourselves have have been destructive and harmful, so that we can um, we can evolve, we can change, and then we can extend a hand to people who are where we were, and say, what would it look like if you joined me on this side? It's so good. And that's where our friends in like AA and NA and groups like that have um, really shown some of us the way of, of what it looks like to do that self-reflection of ownership of it, naming the specificity of it and, um, and being able to develop an empathy that is able to help others. Thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it's been my pleasure to be with you, Mike, and you're, you're a great friend and, and thanks as always for stimulating conversation. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And hey, everybody, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Grace and peace to you all.